You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors and they're talked about by black authors. And you can listen if you are black or not black. That is okay. We got a whole brand new setup here at the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast. I got a i uh it's not a Mac, an iMac, the one that's uh, the desktop Mac. Got that going, but it's kind of janky. And it's saying here that I can use my phone as a webcam. Okay, we're not gonna we're not gonna deal with that right now. Today on the podcast, discussing Vincent Dable Negro Chapter Three. The first podcast was two weeks ago. We did the introduction in Chapter One. The second podcast uh, on this book was today um, in the morning, Chapter Two, and then I'm uh, going to record this Chapter Three and, and release it tonight because uh, originally I thought that I could do Chapters Two and Three together. And I was sorely mistaken. If you've listened to chapter two, you can see that it took me 44 minutes to get through it. It's going to take about that long to get through this. But yeah, uh, I wanted to make sure that I gave enough time to sort through all of the different ideas that come up when you're reading a book like this. Um, in general, these podcasts, the goal of them, especially when it's fiction, is around 20 minutes. But with nonfiction, there's a lot more to get to. And chapter three especially had me looking up uh, right in front of me is uh, for, uh, the classic slave narratives. Um, I have the the life of Oladao Equino, the history of Mary Prince, and the reason I picked up today, the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. So I have that book in front of me on my uh, iMac. I've got open a excerpt from David Walker's memoir about slavery, um, or slave narrative about slavery. I have open uh, another Frederick Douglass letter that he wrote. And I also have open a PDF of Fred Moten's um, Fred Moten's writing about Aunt Hester, which appeared in his book. Um, I can't remember the name of it right now. In the break. So yeah, if you've read that book, uh, it's that one is tough. I, I reviewed that book here or talked about it, whatever you want to call this. I wouldn't call it a review. I discussed that book on this podcast. So if you go back into the archives, you can find that. But yeah, so. Um, all of that to say, you read a book like Vincent Woodward's Woodard's uh, The Delectable Negro or Fred Moten's In the Break, and it breaks you off into all of these different tangents that I will get to, and I will require more than my usual runtime to do. Okay, so that is the story. Uh, usually I lay out a roadmap in, in these, and I go like, oh, I'm going to talk about this first, and then that, and this. No roadmap necessary. Here, we're going to talk about chapter three, and we're just going to work through it. So, um, let me start here. Um, I feel the need, the probably unnecessary need to apologize for clicking. I imagine that you can guess that that clicking is um, a mouse. But, um, I don't know. I just feel the need to apologize for it. Okay, so the place where we're going to start is at the end. And we're going to start there because I think it does a good job of explaining what Woodward, what Woodard is trying to accomplish in this chapter. So. He says uh, about Frederick Douglass. So let me just real quick actually say the title because that'll also help frame what the chapter is about. Chapter three, a tale of hunger retold 
Ravishment and Hunger in Frederick Douglass. Again, I assume that if you've listened to, if you're listening to this, that you've been reading up to this point. But if you haven't, the essential thesis and throughline of this work is that slavery was a cannibalistic institution driven by the homoerotic and cannibalistic desires of white society in America. I think that succinctly puts it. Chapter three. So chapter one deals with, let me see what the title was. I have it here. Um, chapter one is uh, cannibalism in transatlantic context. Yes. Chapter two, sex, honor, and human consumption. So he basically just goes through these texts and, and you know, gives a, what we'll call a cannibalistic reading to them. If that doesn't make sense to you, think of it as like a feminist reading, a Marxist reading. This is a cannibalistic reading. So that's kind of what he's doing here with Frederick Douglass. I don't want to call it a, uh, a reinvention or something like that. It's, um, it's a reading. So if you read Frederick Douglass's work with an eye towards cannibalism, perhaps you will be able to draw out what Woodard has, what Woodard has drawn out. Okay. So, uh, here on page 140, we can summarize even better what Woodard is trying to do. This is literally the last five or six sentences that he writes in this chapter. We should see him, meaning Frederick Douglass, simultaneously as a heroic male, a male daughter, a, fec a fecund, birth-giving male, a male child who was raped, a striving and self-serving patriarch, an ennobled father of black letters and liberation, if I had to choose a more central motivation fueling these multiple overlapping and intersecting identities, I would choose hunger over and beyond reason, falling back upon the female genealogy of hunger and consumption evinced in Douglas's maternal relations and in his own embodied feminine sensibilities. Hunger, as I am thinking of it, is logical, reasoning, and strategic. It is also embodied, sensate, and intuitive. Hunger is a mediating alchemical ground, a point from which Douglas consistently translated what was felt and desired into reasoned action, rhetorical performance, and civic belonging. It is out of Douglas's hunger and in response to forces that threatened to consume him that he dreamed, envisioned, and embodied a nation as complex, unresolved, and revisionary as himself. A lot of stuff in there. We're not even going to break it down. That's just the basis of it. All right? That's where we're at with it. Okay? So, uh... Essentially, Douglas encompasses all of these things. I guess we are going to break it down. I lied. Douglas encompasses all of these things. And I think most importantly out of there, if you could pick it up, was that he's got this uh, female genealogy inside of him where he's learned, um, well, he's definitely learned about slavery through his uh, female relatives. And that has informed his entire you know, way he moves through the world. So we'll get to that. Um, let's go to my next plot point here, which is Aunt Hester. Okay, so that's the first female relative. If you've never read Frederick Douglass's uh, narrative, the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, I hadn't. Um, you can go to chapter one. At the end of chapter one, he talks about his Aunt Hester. Uh, this occurrence took place very soon after I went to live with my old master and under the following circumstances. Aunt Hester went out one night, where or for what I do not know, and happened to be absent when my master desired her presence. He goes on to mention that basically his master found her very attractive, he alludes to that. She went sneaking around and um, 
met up with a, a male slave from a different plantation. Obviously, they were in love. And, yeah, the master didn't like that. And he, um, he, he savagely beat her. And this is when, whipped her. Not, not beat, whipped her. Um, and this is when Frederick Douglass became aware of being a slave. He, he didn't even really know that he was a slave up until then. He just had been raised on the outskirts of the plantation and was young. His first introduction into like, oh, right, like I'm, I'm actually not free was watching his aunt get beaten uh, savagely. So Woodard is saying to us here that this is the first, you know, uh, part of uh, Douglas's genealogical, female genealogical uh, education. Um, I guess what I've been doing for the first two parts of this book is saying, you know, do I buy it? Because basically what I need Woodard to convince me that what he's saying is true. Uh, do I buy what he's saying here? Sure. Um, I think that's possible. Uh, I don't know about this making Frederick Douglass a male daughter or a fecund childbearing male. I'm not sure about that. We'll get to more evidence in a second. But, um, you know, just the general idea that he's learning and that um, his sensibility is informed by a female influence. I don't, I don't see why not. Um, but okay, so maybe uh, just tangentially, really quick. This was the first time I thought of Fred Moten, who, um, who wrote about Aunt Hester at the beginning of his book in the break. And in that book, the whole point of it is this, this horrible shrieking that Aunt Hester is making, and how this. I think this shriek is um, reverberated throughout, uh, you know, black history, I think is the idea. And that, and that reverberation is really, um, and I think this is Moten's point, but it has been several months, maybe a year since I've read the book. Um, that, that, that shriek is the cut. That's the... That's the thing that's reverberated through the soul of black folks. And uh, so he was approaching it from a different point. But there's another reason why I looked up Moton, and we'll get to that later. But anyway, the fact that it's in Moton, the fact that it's in uh, Woodard's book, the fact that Moton is talking about it in his book because he's commenting on another person talking about it, the fact that it's in Douglas's book got me to thinking about the African-American canon. And so I Googled it and, and to see, you know, is there an African-American canon? Has somebody charged themselves with the African-American canon? Like, these are the books you ought to read. Uh, of course, it's going to be controversial because people are going to say, oh, you left out this group, that group, the other. But um, if there were an African-American canon of literature, certainly the classic slave narratives would be in it. Everybody has to, has to read Frederick Douglass, or at the very least, be aware of Aunt Hester. It's like a seminal event. It's similar to, and I've talked about this before, W.E.B. Uh, du Bois and the Souls of Black Folk. You might not have to read the entire book, you know, but you should read the whole book, right? I mean, and when I say it should, it's not like I've done all these things, but I'm just saying. Uh, but more importantly, double consciousness, right? That's the concept. So from... The Frederick Douglass book, I'm sure there's many other great things in the book, but Aunt Hester seems to be this part, 
that reverberates throughout. And in W.E.B. Du Bois, we get the double consciousness. So anyway, that's the little side about the black canon. You can see why this podcast is going to take a while. Okay, so um, that's the opening gambit for Woodard. And then uh, on page 117, he says, um, and this is the part where we do get uh, slavery as cannibalism. And this is good evidence. Um, And this is directly... It's not directly from the narrative, but it's almost directly uh, quoted. Uh, Hester is hung up on a meat hook. Her pooled blood and flesh particles commingle with sites of food preparation with the whole enterprise of feeding and sustaining life on the plantation. It's true. And I've been skeptical uh, of Woodard's reading of um, different African-American texts and slave narratives, but I I think that this one is very compelling. Uh, he, He, the master, literally drags her to the kitchen and had a hook in place for this purpose. So this was not an accidental thing. This wasn't like, oh, I usually hang up the flower there. This was, and this is according to Douglas firsthand. This is not Woodard reading into it. That was there for this purpose. So, um, yeah, I thought this was some of the most compelling evidence in the in the book so far um, for Woodard's uh, assertion, assert, assertions. What is wrong with me? Okay, so that's the first part. The next section is called Male Daughter. Um, So I'm going to just skip to page 120. And it's actually page 105. Um, So here, Woodard recounts a letter that Douglas wrote to his former master. And this is apparently a famous letter. I had never heard of it. It's a lot of things to read, so nobody should feel guilty when we don't hear about things, okay? All right. The thing I had read the most from Frederick Douglass was, um, what is the 4th of July? What to the former slave is the 4th of July? That's what I had read, uh, that speech. Um, so anyway, I had never read this letter. Here... Woodard is asserting that Douglas is writing this letter from the perspective of a woman. And he says, what makes this letter so strange is the fact that Douglas speaks vicariously through the voice and body of a young white daughter. Namely, uh, he's talking about Amanda, the daughter of his um, slave master, Ald, A-U-L-D, I believe is his name. So I'm going to read... Uh, a passage. I'm not going to read the passage that's quoted in um, Woodard's book. I'm going to go to the original text because Woodard kind of, um, it's a long letter and Woodard leaves some parts out intentionally. And so it's kind of hard to get at what he's getting at. So I, I went and read it and just distilled it down to the part that's most relevant. Okay. So here we go. The responsibility, which you have assumed in this regard, is truly awful, and how you could stagger under it these many years is marvelous. Your mind must have become darkened, your heart hardened, your conscience seared and petrified, or you would have have long since thrown off the accursed load and sought relief at the hands of a sin-forgiving God. How, let me ask, would you look upon me were I... Let me just start there again, because that I is very important, so lock in. How, let me ask, would you look upon me were I, 
some dark night in company with a band of hardened villains to enter the precincts of your elegant dwelling and seize the person of your own lovely daughter, Amanda, and carry her off from your family, friends, and all the loved ones of her youth, make her my slave, compel her to work, and I take her wages, place her name on my ledger as property, disregard her personal rights, fetter the powers of her immortal soul by denying her the right and privilege of learning to read and write, feed her coarsely, clothe her scantily, and whip her on the naked back occasionally, more and still more horrible, leave her unprotected, a degrading victim to the brutal lust of fiendish overseers who would pollute, blight, and blast her fair soul, rob her of all dignity, destroy her virtue, and annihilate in her person all the graces that adorn the character of virtuous womanhood. Now, uh, it is our humor that has sustained us as a black people for 400 years. And I want you to keep in mind, keep that in mind when I say, it sounds to me like what Frederick Douglass is saying is, how would you feel if uh, a bunch of black folks took your daughter and ran the train on her? Is what it sounds like to me. Obviously, it's a serious situation. And what he's really saying is how would it be like if she was enslaved? But also, you know, raped by fiendish overseers. I, this sounds to me like um, Eldridge Cleaver and, uh, and um, Black Dada Nihilismus, the poem by um, uh, Amiri Baraka. That's what this sounds like to me. It doesn't sound like that I, that I that I highlighted. That's what Woodard's talking about. How, let me ask, would you look upon me were I, some dark knight in company, he's taking this I, and I guess maybe you could. You go look up the letter, read it yourself. He's saying that that I is him talking in the voice of Amanda about getting all that stuff done to her. I don't see it. I just don't see it. And I think that there's enough of a uh, history of, you know... No other way to say it. Rape as revenge. Um, in literature. By African American authors. That we don't have to. Uh, you know. Fish for a meaning. So. And, and, and when I say history. I'm just talking. Eldridge Cleaver. And and, uh, and uh, the poem Black Dot. Or the song Black Dot. Nihilismus. Is enough. Right. You don't need like. I don't need 50 pieces of text. There's two. Eldridge Cleaver is pretty famous about. You know. That being a thing, uh, which he later denounced. And um, Black Dada Nihilismus has the line in it that's like, um, it's something like rape, the white women rape the, rape the uh, something or other. It's pretty explicit. So if I'm weighing pieces of evidence that, that Woodard is presenting to me, this one falls pretty short uh, to me. It falls pretty short. I don't see... Um, Douglas as a male daughter. I see him being outraged on behalf of his female relatives and seeking to pay that outrage back uh, sexually, with sexual violence. That, that, that's what I see. I think that's what most people see. I think that's even Woodard would say that's what most people see. So I don't think that's controversial at all. The question is, can you see it another way? Uh, I, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't. Um, and then even on page uh, 107, Woodard says, 
Um, up to this point, I have suggested that sexual violation is metaphorically present in Douglas's narrative. He means sexually uh, sexually, excuse me, sexual violation metaphorically present in terms of happening to Douglas. Okay. Um, cause obviously it's present period, but happening to Douglas and just to, you know, be clear, um, his, I'm not going to read the passage, but his original owner, um, was sexually violating his aunt. Okay. So that's not what Woodard's talking about. He's talking about how he has suggested that sexual violation is metaphorically present in Douglas's narrative. But I think it important to consider that Douglas may have in fact been literally raped. For what could be more harrowing in description than the blood-soaked scenes that he describes? And he, he, the reason he asked that question is because Douglas says, I have left things out that I, I'm not even going to talk about. And so Woodard is conjecturing that, hey, maybe it was that he was raped. And... What can you say? Of course, it could be, you know, that that's really where we end. That's really where it ends for me. Perhaps Frederick Douglass was raped. Perhaps he just saw something that was even more terrible. Um, you know, I, I don't know. But that, a lot of what Woodard is banking on is that um, he can, you know, effectively speculate about the things that he not sure or we're not sure or there's no first-hand evidence of um necessarily took place uh as i said in chapters one and two like you, you'd have to be a fool to think that there was no um is it called homosexual rape instead of heterosexual rape is that what you call it if there's no male-on-male rape i guess um because, I mean, I don't really feel like you should attach the word homosexual or heterosexual to rape, right? That, that seems odd to me. There's no male-on-male rape. Uh, if you think that that's the case during slavery times, I, I think that you're crazy, right? So I, I don't think anybody's... Well, I'm sure some people are naive enough to think it didn't happen. But um, I'm sure that that happened. Am I sure that it happened to Frederick Douglass? No, I'm not. So that's where I met with that. Um, but okay, so that was the male daughter, and the last thing I'll say on this is, um, a minor point of contention, but I feel that it's necessary here. Uh, he's talking about these narratives that were written at the time and why they left out those details, why they would have left out male-on-male rape and uh, etc. He says, abolitionists and the larger educated American readership would have immediately recognized Douglas's numerous references to rape and been able to read between the lines of the narrative to ascertain that Douglas had probably been raped by Covey or other males in the plantation community. This just seems very far-fetched to me. And the reason it does is because we live in the most media literate time in the history of the world. Now, you might have pushback on that. If you don't think it's now, then it was in, within the last 50 years. And, and that's the mass public, right? The mass public is more media literate than they've ever been before. In the, the 19th century, the mass public wasn't uh, literate. Forget media literate. They weren't literate, right? Most people, or a good number of people, weren't literate. So, uh, what I'm suggesting is that the people who are who were very literate and could read between the lines then, still exist now, that number of people is not that high now compared to the overall number of people who are media literate and then compared to the overall number of people who are literate, right? So the three levels, right? Basic literacy, 
then you know above average like you know media literacy able to parse things and then the third thing where you can actually like read between the lines and pick up on things that aren't explicitly stated that's i think another level i'm not sure I guess he's saying the abolitionists and the larger educated American readership. That just seems, I mean, the Douglas book was a bestseller. I don't think that everybody who picks it up, who could read, definitely got that. I just don't. But perhaps I'm misreading the situation. Ha <laughs> ha, misreading. Okay, we move on. How are we doing on time here? Let's take a look. Already 24 minutes. You see why this podcast had to be split? Okay, we have two more sections to talk about. Oh no, just one more section. So we might be able to finish. Uh, my goal is under 44 minutes. All right, mapping mother hunger is the next section. And this uh, dove uh, more into um, Douglas's story, but also has mention of Sojourner Truth, another very famous um, ex-slave and uh, hero. Um, and abolitionist and, and everything else. So here I'm going to go on another tangent. So this is in page um, 120, or excuse me, 113. Here what uh, Woodard is talking about is the idea of desire and how this is sexually driven, this cannibalistic desire is also sexual in nature it's all wrapped up together and basically the the pleasure derived from doing this psychotic shit that these slave owners were doing was both sexual and uh and uh you know cannibalistic so here's part of his proof i have uh, this is a, a slave um or this is douglas I have known him to tie her up early in the morning and whip her before breakfast, leave her, go to his store, return at dinner, and whip her again, cutting her in the places already made raw with his cruel lash. Right? So if you put that, if you take out all of the parts about the beating, you could think of it as like a sexual deviant who just, you know, has to have sex multiple times. I guess not a sexual deviant. It might be a... <laughs> A person in their 20s with an extremely healthy libido. I don't know. Uh, but when I read this, I get less hunger vibes. And I get more, and I mentioned this in the last chapter, I get serial killer vibes. Like, where my mind goes to is, what is the link between slavery and serial killing? Uh, because this kind of savage, like, you know, Neanderthalic, you know, low human uh, behavior, the only thing that I can think of since slavery that's even similar is serial killing. And it is, you know, America's other peculiar institution. We have more of it than everybody else. Um, so that's where my mind goes. And when I keep reading these passages, the more I read them, the more I'm like, this is fucked up serial killer stuff. And then I guess, yeah, when you think of it that way, some serial killers do eat their victims. Some serial killers do have weird sex things. So, in uh, that way, I guess Woodard's kind of convincing me a bit, you know? Um, but I am interested in that serial killer slavery link, and I do need to, gotta find a book on that. 
definitely not going to write a book on that. That's too dark for your boy. Uh, okay. So then, um, just to continue then, so that was my little tangent. Page 129, here's the best argument though. Um, when pretty severely pinched by hunger, I had a habit of singing, which the good lady very soon came to understand as a petition for a piece of bread. When I sung under Miss Lucreta's window, I was very apt to get well paid for my music. Uh, I mean, of course, that could be alluding to like some kind of sexual thing on the, on the end of um, like Douglas's having sex with... Uh, Miss Lucreta's, or Miss Lucreta, um, you know, so there's that, right? But, but he is definitely motivated by hunger there. And remember that the whole point of this is that, um, Woodard is saying that uh, Douglas was driven by hunger. Um, and then finally here, he says, for that was the danger and underlying intention of the culture of consumption to imprint slaves so deeply with hunger that they come to relate to themselves as essentially commodities and also to consume themselves with a litany of soul-devouring thought, that's in quotes, and behaviors reinforced by the master's hungers and tastes. This is the best fucking passage in the book. This is the best. This is Woodard nailing it. This is the most compelling evidence in the book. Because it's the idea of the slave mentality, which exists, no argument there. The slave mentality which exists, which we have been subjected to for hundreds of years. I am not doing some Kanye West shit like, oh yeah, you can just turn it off and it goes away. No. But it is true that because of slavery, it's very hard to see yourself as worthy uh, sometimes. You have the inferiority complex. You have the double consciousness. You have all these different things at play. You have the slave mentality, good hair, dark skin, light skin, kinky hair, nappy hair, all this fucked up shit. Then the soul devouring thought and behaviors reinforced by the master's hungers and tastes. Then you have what? Then you have the shuffle, right? Then you have, oh, this is how they want me to behave. I'll go ahead and behave that way. Right? Uh, so this shit is spot on. And I think that whenever Woodard does this in the book, he's hitting it right on the head. And in that way, he's coming to convince me a little bit of his thesis. I still think that it's uh, a bit, I, I'm getting caught up a lot on the syntax, but this idea, I don't think you can argue with it. Um, the culture of consumption was taught to us. That's not to say that uh, black people wouldn't have been engaging in commerce and trade and all of that. That that's not what we're talking about. It's not because I, I don't like that idea. Like, oh, capitalism um, wouldn't have like uh, existed otherwise or whatever. But this is the death cult of capitalism, right? The American style capitalism is a failure in the same way that like Soviet style communism was a failure. American style capitalism consumption without any kind of fucking thought to sustainability, renewability, um, and just the general welfare of all the citizens of the country is a failure. That was taught, learned, and reverberates to this day. And we're all, uh, white people too, but who cares? But we're all black people, most of us, almost all of us, especially if you live here, uh, 
participating in the perpetuation of it, and that's not the blame game. We have to, right? You have to survive. You live in this fucking society. You got to make money. So that's it. So you got to go out and play the game. Who defined the rules of the game? The master did. His hungers and tastes. And so, we literally consume each other. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. So, when Woodard does this, when he focuses on the idea of consumption, this culture of consumption, this, I like the term, death cult of consumption, I think that's where he really hits the nail on the head. Okay. Um, we do a few more quotes that link to this. Okay, so he's got another one here on page uh, 115. I felt myself a slave, and the idea of speaking to white people weighed me down. This is Douglas again. It's exactly what we're just talking about right now, that inferiority complex. Did I just say that word weird? Inferiority complex. Um, this is the same shit, right? So then you finally do break through. You feel like you can make it. You made it. Uh, you go out into the larger society. And um, you have to interface with white people. Now, this is not for every black person, right? Some of us, like myself, raised in the suburbs and raised middle class. Uh, so I was exposed early. But let's say you weren't and you're coming from, um, you know, Frederick Douglass is coming from literal slavery. But let's say you're not coming from that because that literal kind of slavery does not exist in 2023 for black people in America. But you're coming from a poor black area. And you, for whatever reason, not that you have to, right? But for whatever reason, you get involved out into the larger white world. If you are not supremely confident in your abilities, if you haven't done the work to get rid of all of this shit, all of the weight of history reverberating Aunt Hester's scream, reverberating through your soul, it can weigh you down. It can weigh you down. And we see it all the time. And I think that's where you get a guy like Kanye West saying that shit about like slave shit or whatever, like it's all in our heads. Where he gets sidetracked is that, is that he's an idiot and it's obviously not all in our heads. Some of that shit is still real, very real, very, very real. And yeah, you can, of course, you got to break free from the mental chain to succeed. But even after you do that, that doesn't just magically make it all go away. So, you know. We move to page 117 where there's one more quote uh, that I thought, it's a small one, but I like it. He says, and this is him going and meeting Lincoln at the White House, he recalls a scene uh, of such elegance, such as in this country I had never witnessed before. And the reason I like this quote is, so we talk about you leave, for lack of a better term, tired of pussyfooting around the fucking word, you leave the ghetto, right, okay, if you were born there, right, if you were born there and lived there. And you get out and you, you make it out into the world, okay? If you happen to live in, um, you know, one of the chocolate cities of America, then whatever. You don't have to interface with white people anyway. And you can just be in the black city and do your thing. But let's say you're not. Let's say you're living in a, in a ghetto in a, in a mixed city. You get out, you interface with white people. That's one, that's one thing, okay? So that's one thing, okay? An example would be like Patrick Beverly talked about this where he was raised in a Chicago, uh, raised in Chicago believe in a poor neighborhood, never talked to a white person until he got to college, right? So that's him interfacing with white people. Then from there, he gets to the NBA. Now he's in the inner sanctum. Every single person he meets who's uh, 
on the team with him or at the coaching level, right? Head coach level or an owner is as rich or richer than him. This is the inner sanctum now. And that's where Douglas is. He's meeting President Lincoln. He could barely get into the fucking White House because they were like, what are you doing here? Lincoln had to come out and bring him in. He meets Lincoln. And uh, it's this elegance such as this country he had never witnessed before. He didn't even know it was possible. He didn't even know it was fucking possible. And that is the ultimate mental prison. Because if you go tell a kid, now it's a little bit different with social media. And, and this is one of the positive things in social media. People can see what is possible if you can uh, run away from all of the horrible shit in your surroundings. You can see it was possible. But when I was a kid, kids who were less fortunate than me couldn't even see a way out on their screens or whatever. You know, unless they happen to watch the Cosby show and the less said about Cosby, the better. And I only mean Cosby being positive in the sense that, look, he's a doctor, right? Look, he's a doctor. Uh, if you don't have the, how can you, how can you aspire to be something that you've never seen, right? Representation matters, all of that. And so, um, this is Douglas literally getting to a place that he couldn't even aspire to. Couldn't even imagine. Couldn't even imagine. This is already once he had been famous, right? He had been in nice places. He had drank wine. You know, he'd had suits on. I don't know, whatever was decadence in the 19th century. He had done it. And then he gets here and he's like, oh shit. Thought I knew something. The end of it is, of course, is that Lincoln betrays him and he, and he loses all faith in Lincoln. Uh, we've seen that before, right? Black people losing faith in a president who we thought was doing right by them. We've seen it before. Now, me, I've never lost faith in a president because, you know, not really. I've never had faith in a president. So you can't lose something you didn't have. Um, so I, I think that this last half of the chapter, last third of the chapter, is, is by far the strongest. Um, it's, you know, it, it, it hits it on the head. It... Uh, it speaks to the ongoing inferiority complex and Stockholm syndrome that black people have to deal with, right? That Stockholm syndrome is also a thing, right? Like, hey, man, it's good here, right? We all have the opportunity here, right? Oh, look. Oh, look at these opportunities I have. Um, aren't these great? They are, right? You know, in a way. But in another way, it could have been better, right? Could have been better. And, and, and you can take that could have been better at any point in history, right? If you drop it all the way back in slavery, you use a lot stronger language than it could have been better. This could be way fucking better. It shouldn't have ever existed. And if you drop it in the, you know, 1930s and uh, 1950s and 1970s, you know, at this point in 2023, you can take a little bit of the edge off of it a little bit and say things could be better because they've certainly gotten better, but not good enough. And so... There's that Stockholm Syndrome aspect too, though, where you sometimes do catch yourself because you do want to be grateful when other people are worse off, but that shouldn't be the fucking measuring stick. This country has no excuse for all of the shit that it's put black people through and continued to, and continues to do. So I think Woodard speaks to um, all of that. All of that. Okay. I got a couple of bits and bobs here 
Um, yeah, and then we're going to finish this thing. We're going to finish this thing right on time. So um, first bit is just uh, Moten. I said I thought of Moten. Here's where I thought of Moten. Here's the other place where I thought of Moten. Uh, on page 104, um, Woodard says, the text of the page and the text of the female body are coterminous. Now, this is him talking about um, Douglas writing My Bondage and My Freedom. The reason that this is interesting to me is because in Moten, Moten has a chapter where he's arguing against uh, Lee Edelman. And Lee Edelman has this concept of homographesis. And I could not hunt down a copy of that essay that I hunted down for the podcast when I read it. But if I'm remembering correctly, it was the idea of essentially almost that biblical idea where um, I believe it's in the book of John where he says, uh, the, in the beginning was the word and the word was God, uh, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. And I believe Lee Edelman was talking about <laughs> Believe the Edelman. I, I'm 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 an I'm an atheist, by the way. So I'm I happen to be able to quote the Bible, but I I am an atheist. Okay. Anyway, um, Lee Edelman was talking about how the homosexual experience, or um, something along these lines, the, the homosexuality or homosexual people existing on the page, right? That was something homographesis. That that idea was in there. And then, and then here Woodard is grappling with that same idea. And then the the Nigerian philosopher Emmanuel Ezi, whose book I read, talks about language and consciousness, and that's essentially, um, you know, the idea that like your consciousness is shaped by language, like language is the thing. All of this being about you know words manifesting into reality, manifesting into flesh. Just all to me very interesting um, concepts that are all circling around the same thing, you know. And one person uses it for religion, and another for philosophy of consciousness, and another for the female body uh, as experienced by a male, and another for the homosexual experience as experienced by homosexuals. Um, I don't know. It's it's just interesting that so many people latch onto this idea and it speaks to the power of language and the word, right? How you can literally speak it into existence or so it would seem, write it into existence. Once it's down on the page, the thought has now been produced and is passed on, distributed to everybody else who reads it. Now they have the thought, they reproduce it, Maybe they write it down, pass it on orally, and then it gets reproduced. And before long, it's no longer a thought or just a word that was, words that were written down as thought. It's a real idea. The idea gains power and it lives in people's minds. And then it is embedded in them and it becomes part of them. That seems to be some of what's happening here. Okay. The last bit in Bob is, we end on a, a note of levity. And, um, I think it's important, but I just thought this was funny. So on page 118, um, Woodard says, in this instance, Douglas casts himself in the more effeminate role, describing Marshall as chivalrous, gallant, and possessed of generous, manly qualities. And my question is, 
uh, is it gay to notice that another man is um, chivalrous and gallant and generous and possessed of generous manly qualities? Is that effeminate or and or gay? I don't know. I mean, is I is it either one? I guess he didn't say gay. So, but let me just say that one first. It, does it make you gay to just appreciate another dude's manliness? Maybe, whatever. Maybe just locate you somewhere on the Kinsey scale. I mean, whatever. It doesn't matter. But I would, I would think you could also just like heterosexually um, appreciate a, the male body. I, I've played sports my whole life, so spent a lot of time staring at dudes' bodies. I don't know. You know, when a guy has a very impressive looking body, I think it's impressive. If that's uh, a homosexual thing, I mean, that's fine too. You know, whatever. Uh, I thought it was a heterosexual admiration. It could be a homosexual admiration. For the second part, is it an effeminate? Uh, is it an effeminate uh, thing? I, that I don't think so, right? I mean, I would say that that one's less likely. I don't think it's effeminate to just be like that person's manly. Um, so I I don't know. Maybe I'm just maybe maybe this is purely me talking about my interior self, but he's subjectively talking about Douglas, right? And I think objectively saying like this is if you're describing something this way, then it's like objectively effeminate. I don't, I don't really see that. I could see it being one, just normal. Like, oh, that guy's doodly. Okay. Not normal. Shouldn't say normal. I'm sorry. Uh, it could be one, just, I don't want to say heterosexual. I don't, actually, no, normal, just normal. Like it doesn't matter what your orientation was. Be normal to just look at a guy who looks very manly. That guy's very manly. I don't know. Is that weird? <laughs> like that's not weird to just, uh, there's nothing. Um, there is to me, no thing attached to that, right? There's no adjective attached to looking at a person who looks manly and saying that person looks manly if they're male or female or a different gender. It's just that person appears manly. I don't think that that is effeminate, heterosexual or homosexual. I think it's just normal. That is a normal thing for any person in the world to say about a person who outwardly looks manly i think so to answer the the twitter question fellas is it gay to say another person's manly i'm gonna say no i'm gonna say it's not gay i'm gonna say it's not effeminate and i'm gonna say it's not straight that's where i've landed after talking myself through it it's none of those things it is an observation about a person like that person has a mustache they're hairy that person looks really what does he say gallant and chivalrous and generous and manly qualities i don't you know to me that means like when i hear generous and manly qualities for some reason i'm thinking mustache and muscles like um the hammer fred williamson I was thinking of his name uh but you know you might have your different maybe mustache isn't manly to you i don't know anyway that's my final note on this little this little shindig here, chapter three. So that'll do it for this chapter. Um, overall, I thought that it was it was pretty strong. And I think that um, strong in delivering on the overall idea of the book. I don't think it delivered on the idea that Douglas is uh, a male daughter and a a fecund uh, male, uh, you know, male able of birth, uh, whatever. I I don't see that, but I think it's strong in um, 
in the sense that uh, it does tie into his overall narrative of the consumption death cult. I'm rebranding a little bit here. I don't like the cannibalism term. It doesn't work for me. So I thought it was strong there. I don't think it was necessarily strong in the, the, that individual chapter's thesis, but I thought overall it was strong. Next week, going to do two more chapters. Definitely going to record them separately and release them at the same time like I did this week because they're just long. Um, so yeah, do chapter four and five next week. And then after that, I'll do chapter six and then uh, like wrapping thoughts. So that'll be two more podcasts next week. And then the week after, maybe um, maybe one podcast, like chapter six plus just like some thoughts. So yeah. Um, and then after that, I have several books to read by, by authors who have uh, several, like three, but yeah, sent me some books. So I'll do a little fiction thing and, and that's where we're at. But okay. Uh, please, you know, if you enjoyed the podcast, even if you didn't just subscribe anyway, who cares? You just don't have to listen to us, but yeah, subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or I keep saying that Spotify, Apple music, Apple podcasts, uh, pocket cast, which is what I use YouTube. Um, I'm also on Instagram and, uh, TikTok, but I don't update those as much, but I'm trying. And then the music is by the keep running. Um, if you would like to read some stuff that I've written, check the show notes. You got some writings there, plus a book that I released called playing in the sand about a comedian starting a cult. It's a novel. And yeah, uh, I believe that's going to do it. So next time stay safe stay black and keep reading this time enough at last that's not fair that's not fair at all there was time now there was was all the time I needed that's not fair <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs>